came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 19th of October 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And this week our special guest is Dr. Ankel Lopez-Sanchez who explains gravitational waves, neutron stars, kilonova and bling. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky, and give us his tangent for this episode. So let's cross over to Sydney now to talk with Dr. Angel Lopez Sanchez about this week's amazing discoveries. Hello, Uncle. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you, Uncle. We last spoke with Dr. Lopez Sanchez back in March this year when he explained all about galaxies with star formation activity and the features of very massive Wolf Rayette stars. Uncle is with the AAO, the Australian Astronomical Observatory. But we have some very exciting news today about some amazing discoveries related to gravitational waves and an observable kilonova. First of all, congratulations on your new role with the AAO. Can you tell us a little about that, please? Thank you very much for the words. Well, now I'm not only doing support the Anglo-Australian Telescope, which is part of my role, but mainly my main position now it is science communication officer and outreach officer, meaning that I'm more in charge of conducting media and organizing and helping diverse uh, outreach and science communication activities. And we have been very much involved in many of these events during National Science Week and during Vivid Sydney and during Starfest in Kunabara and Siren Spring Observatory. Fantastic, Ankel. Now, can you talk us through what has happened since the fifth gravitational wave was detected back in August this year? What's happened around the world? Many things. Many things. So, the fifth detection of a gravitational wave, that was something that happened on the 17th of August this year, and it was something that it was new. First, because it was not only the LIGO interferometer in the U.S., which is actually two interferometers in the two coasts in the U.S., and they detected this signal that it was 
from the very beginning, it was different from the previous ones, but it was also important because a new interferometer of gravitational waves is now working in Italy, that is called Virgo. And with the three of them, with the three of them, it was much easier to locate the position of the gravitational waves in the sky. Because something that was difficult from the very beginning, and one of the main reasons why the international community really wanted to build more interferometers around the world, including here in Australia, it is because it is hard to locate the position of the gravitational waves in the sky. Remember that we are not watching light. We are hearing in some way. We are listening to some kind of noise of sound that we call gravitational waves. The consequence of the distortions of the space-time predicted and now confirmed by the gravitational relativity, traditional general relativity by Albert Einstein. So we have now proven that it is right. So it is just a combination of all of that. So it is not that easy, actually, to know exactly from where an event, gravitational wave burst, is happening. But with the three observatories, it was easy to locate more or less the area in the sky. And on top of that, at the same time, well, only 1.7 seconds after the detection of the gravitational wave by both LIGO and Virgo interferometers, the NASA Fermi satellites that is in Gamma Ray Observatory, just detected a peak of emission, a burst of short Gamma Ray emission coming in a particular band of the sky that was actually crossing the same area from which detection of the gravitational wave was, was found. So in that way, these two things were doing that we were detecting in some way light because gamma ray or x-rays are also a kind of light. It is electromagnetic emission. It is different from gravitational waves. It is another thing. So we were starting to see the light and it was starting a frenetic, crazy chase around the world to try to see. Can we see this with the standard optical telescope and the near-infrared telescope and radio telescope? Can we know more things about this? And yes, they were able to find some of the telescope in Chile, and, and the telescope in Chile was because of the... They were just lucky. They were the first to get the dark time, the night, in that period, <laughs> uh, since the discovery. They were able to find a bright new star, it was like a supernova, but different from a supernova, and now that is called we call it a kilonova, yep. in a galaxy which is NGC 4993, yep. that is only located 130 million light years from us. So that, that expression that we were seeing with the optical telescopes, it was the optical counterpart of both the gravitational wave detected by the radio interfer- by the gravitational wave interferometer by LIGO and Virgo and the optical counterpart of the gamma ray burst detected by the Fermi satellite. Okay, so the DES camera, the Deep Energy Survey camera, was the first to find the kilonova. Before we talk about Australia, can you tell us what other countries were involved or what other instruments were involved in this search for the kilonova? 
I will never end names of instruments and telescope. I will say everybody. <laughs> everybody was involved looking for the signal, and they were all very excited because something that is important to remember it is that professional telescopes or professional observatories they all are working or we all are working with with a fixed schedule. The schedule is actually set up months in advance. Yes. Because it is the way we do that. So we apply for time for observing a particular project. And well, usually it doesn't really matter when you observe the project, usually. So the time is allocated to different projects at different moments, at different days, sometimes different half nights or some few hours, depending on the project. But on top of that, there is something that we call a target of opportunity, which means that there are some projects or some other kind of observations, for example, a supernova explosion of a gamma ray explosion that we are trying to look for the counterpart in optical wavelength, or as it happened this time, searching for the counterpart of a gravitational wave, then you can override the scheduled projects to try to do and get in that time, because it will be only possible that time to get the time. And it was very exciting because all astronomers that actually they were allocated the time and they were going to, to use that time for observing the project. Well, they were also excited to say, hey, let's go to help with this because it is cool. It is the very first time it is happening. It is going to break through many things in astronomy and science. We still don't know for sure where we're going with all of these discoveries. So let's go to, to have a look. And an important number that we are trying there is something that we are actually trying to really have a more accurate number, but we have estimated that between the 15 and 20% of all astrophysicists worldwide have been involved in observing and getting the information and analyzing and getting the results of this kilonova associated to a gravitational wave event. That's an enormous number of yeah. people. I, I looked at the LIGO paper and there were four and a half thousand people mentioned in that paper alone. Exactly. We are talking about thousands, some few thousands astronomers, some few thousands when you combine with the theoretical physicists and the technician and the technician instruments and other professionals, they, you, you can make very easily more than five to six thousand persons. And it was difficult, actually, to have this kind of only with, with us because we are trying to do our work and we were very excited and we really wanted to, to tell everybody. But because of the policies, according to all these large collaborations, we couldn't say a thing. That is also important because we really want to be completely sure that what we are saying and what we are announcing to everybody, it is real. Until we don't have all those confirmation and we are, don't have the scientific papers ready, we don't want to go to the public. That is something that, as well in science, we are trying to do right. Fantastic. So let's get a bit personal now. Can you tell us, Ankel, about the teams you've been working with recently on these detections? Well, it is a very large team. I'm actually not that much associated with the team, but as a support astronomer at the Anglo-Australian Telescope, but particularly later, just during the last few weeks, 
helping organizing a media release from the AAO and coordinating with different astronomers and around the world also just to try to facilitate the communication of the results to the general public. Thanks, Ankel. Can you tell us what the Australian instruments found? Oh, well, they, the Australian instruments, they have been actually very, very important, particularly uh, for first confirming the localization of the Silonova with some uh, images and spectroscopy using both the SkyMapper 1.2 meters and the 2.3 meter telescope, uh, ANU uh, telescope, also there at Sidon Spring Observatory, the, the very same night that that happened. Because it was for, for us, the announcement of the gravitational wave happened uh, during uh, midnight of, of, of the of that day, and it was not possible to coordinate anything, particularly because uh, we, we were not sure exactly where it happened. We started to have a clue about the position of the sky when in, in, in here in Australia, in the east coast of Australia, it was already during the day, during the early morning. Yep. So that, but it was in the moment in which it, the sun was setting in Chile. Yep. And that is why they find that they were, they were lucky with that and they were finding that first. So we also got, uh, got some few more spectra. And the other thing that we did was just to continue monitoring the source during the last, uh, during the next few nights. That was the moment in which we actually got some extra time at the, at the Anglo-Australian telescope to get a spectroscopy, this deep, deep spectroscopy of the kilonova. And it was surprising because, as I said, it is just a different thing. So a kilonova, it is just a merger of two neutron stars. It is not a very massive star that is exploding, a supernova, and it is also different from a supernova type 1A, which is the explosion of a, of a white dwarf star. So the, the, the kilonova is a different kind of explosion, and it is not as big as the other two, the standard supernova. That is why it is called kilonova. Actually, have also some few different, uh, different things. But they are very important because they were thought during the last, 30, 40 years, that actually those events were the origin of the very massive elements of the periodic table, particularly while we have been talking about gold, platinum, uranium, silver. So all those relatively massive elements were created during the very dramatic processes that are happening during a merging of two neutron stars. And what we also found, what I was trying to say, it is that the evolution of the kilonova was also very different from the evolution of the supernova. A supernova, you can see the supernova from during many, many days, weeks, months. Yep. It is just slightly dimming, dimming, going, fighting away. But the kilonova, it prefers it was not that bright, and then in only a week, 10 days, it was not there anymore. And it changed the color very quickly from very, very blue to green to just being red, red and cold and just disappeared in just few, few days. So it was just very interesting to get all that information and those data, combining the results obtained here in Australia with other results obtained well, from, from Chile, from the Hubble Space Telescope and so on. But the other important thing, very important thing that Australian astronomers did was finding the kilonova for the very first time detecting it in radio wavelength. Wow. And that happened using the Australian Telescope Compact Array Interferometer in Narrow and a group of astronomers, mainly from 
CSI and Sydney University, led by Professor Tara Murphy. And they were actually doing uh, many observations and detecting for the very first time the light in radio wave of the kilonova. Later, it was also confirmed by the very large array interferometer in New Mexico, but it was Australian astronomers who found it first. Very good. Now, you've been talking about gamma rays, radio waves, optical waves, gravity waves. Do they all travel at the same velocity? Well, that was actually one of the main findings in this all in this study because yes, they all are traveling at the same speed, exactly at the same speed, and as it was predicted also by uh, theory and general relativity, but uh, also connecting with some few others uh, more complex theories. So yeah, that was something that has to be proven, and the fact that the gravitational wave, the burst that we detected with LIGO and Virgo interferometers, arrived almost at the same time, just within a second and a half, 1.7 seconds, that the detection in electromagnetic wavelength, that is uh, electromagnetic radiation, that is light in gamma ray, but later also in light, it is confirming that that is something special. The speed of light in the universe is a very fundamental thing. So now theoreticians have to think a bit more, try to uh, explain and trying to um, understand why that is this. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned the heavy elements being created. My textbooks say that the heavy elements are made in supernovae. Does that mean that the discovery of a collision between neutron stars is creating heavy elements, does that mean we now have to rewrite the nucleosynthesis chapters in all of our astronomy books? Um, yes and no. Yeah. Yes, in the sense that it is right that the heavy elements are actually not from, not in supernova, but from different things, but not in the sense that it was something that we already knew, or we knew, we, we thought that it was that way. We are just confirming it. The thing is that many textbooks, particularly uh, outreach and science communication, just don't go too much into the details of just how the very heavy elements are created. Just I can give you a very quick summary about all of this. We know that hydrogen and helium are created in the Big Bang with a little helium, a little uh, lithium. Then we have the exploding master star, the supernovae that these are the massive stars with masses larger than eight times the sun, the mass of the sun. And these are created very key elements in the universe. Oxygen, fluor, sodium, phosphorus, chlorine, aluminium, silicon, the majority of those elements. And then we have also the dying of low mass stars. For example, the sun, when the sun dies, it will release mainly carbon and nitrogen, yep. with some few of other things. But that is a key pieces of coming uh, different uh, different stars. So that is why we are always saying that we are a stardust. So, so we are trying to understand all these different elements coming from different processes in the universe. So that is what usually it is said in the textbooks. But when we are talking about, in the textbook, when they are talking about uh, exploding stars, they put everything together. They put the massive stars, the white dwarf, and the merging neutron stars in some way, because it is also happening in an explosion. Yep. 
So let's go to think about that the exploding stars actually are three different categories. You can explode a massive star, and then you get uh, the, the, all the elements as I just I mentioned, when you have a very massive star, oxygen, fluor, aluminium, phosphorus, and chlorine, and so on. Yep. Then we have exploding white dwarf stars that actually are releasing mainly iron, yep. and the elements that are around iron, yep. but we have to add a third path, which is emerging neutron stars which is a moment in which these heavy elements that we are talking about, gold, silver, platinum, uranium, thorium, cesium, uh, and many of these uh, rare elements are created. Yep. So that we are putting together and we are confirming that that is happening, and, and, and it is actually great that finally we, we are getting all this connection between different topics. And that is why also this research the discovery, it is so important because it is providing a huge range of different astronomical and physics, physical discoveries. So we have confirmed that neutron stars exist and the same way that we confirmed that black hole existed yep. with, with the, with the, with the gravitational waves and the masses we tend to find the real masses of this object. We also know that they're possible that neutron stars are together and they actually merge together. And now we, we also know that the gamma ray bursts, the, the short duration gamma ray bursts are coming for the fusion of two neutron stars and that is also producing um, gravitational waves. On top of that, we know and we are refining the model of colliding neutron stars to produce these elements, the very heavy elements. We have confirmed that the speed of the gravitational waves is the same as the speed of light. Yep. And on top of that, with this technique, we are now able, in a very independent way, to measure the expansion rate of the universe, the Hubble constant, wow. which is actually a key thing. So, and, and, and these are the, the, the starting points. We now know what we have to do and there are more interferometers of gravitational waves coming very, very soon. Another in Japan, another in India, and we are going to start discovering more of these events. Fantastic, Ankel. On top of that, very busy. Uh, my, my family is not that happy that I have been so crazy busy during the last, particularly during the last couple of weeks. Well, I hope things quieten down a little bit so you can spend some time with your family. Thank you very much, Angel Lopez Sanchez. It's been fabulous speaking with you again, and thank you for telling us about this momentous discovery in the exciting world of astronomy. It has been my pleasure. Always happy to talk to you. And now we cross to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Great to be talking with you again. I hope you've had a wonderful weekend like we have over here in northeast Victoria. It's been beautiful and sunny, and I've done all sorts of things, except the things that I was planning to do, that is. <laughs> I managed to repot two of my carnivorous plants. Very good. Okay, then. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? Well, not as much as there was last week. 
actually Jupiter is still with us, but this is the last week we will be able to even theoretically see Jupiter. Jupiter vanishes into the twilight by the end of the week. Before it does, though, on the 18th, there's uh, an interesting uh, meeting where uh, Jupiter and Mercury are very close together. But at this time, Jupiter's only about three finger widths above the western horizon, 15 minutes after sunset. So you need to have a very flat level horizon on the order of an ocean or a desert and binoculars because Mercury will be completely swallowed up by the twilight. Jupiter will also be hard to see in the twilight, but if you have a pair of uh, decent binoculars, you should be able to fill up Jupiter and and, uh, perhaps Mercury as well, very close together in the twilight on the 18th. After the 18th, Jupiter just gets far too close to the horizon to be seen and soon disappears behind the sun and won't reappear until uh, later this year in the morning sky. So farewell, fantastic Jupiter. We will look forward to seeing you as a morning object so keep an eye out for Mercury, although it'll be quite late this month. Mercury will be a very nice evening object for those of us in the southern hemisphere as it climbs up into the sky and meets with some of the stars of Scorpio. But that's something to look forward to in November. So we'll, so you can breathlessly anticipate Mercury putting on a show for us in November. Wow. Um, Saturn is still putting on a very nice show at the moment. Again, if you're looking towards the western horizon, you will see the upside-down question mark of Scorpius above the western horizon. In the Conspicuously in the handle of the question mark is the bright orange star Antares, the rival of Mars. And if you look up and to the right of Antares, you'll see a bright golden object, and that's Saturn. Saturn is still a good telescopic object uh, and will be for a while. But the window of observing Saturn gets narrower and narrower as it gets closer and closer to the horizon. Yep. So, you know, you've maybe got about two hours good viewing, uh, maybe another hour sort of kind of rubbishy viewing of Saturn. But who cares? Saturn's rings are always nice, even if they're wobbling in the details. Very good. And what about the morning sky, Ian? The morning sky? The morning sky is putting on a little bit of a show for us at the moment. Although, again, Venus, which has been gracing our morning skies very brilliantly for some time, is now getting closer and closer to the horizon. We've still got a little bit longer before Venus becomes too enmeshed in the horizon to be seen. Mars has been slowly climbing higher out of the twilight flow and is now relatively easy to see. Again, this, you're going to need a fairly level, flat horizon without huge trees or things to see this effectively. Although you've got a bit better chance than you have with the Jupiter-Mercury combination because if you wait uh, until closer to sunrise, both Venus and the Crescent Moon are still easily seen in the twilight. Mars will disappear, but you should be able to pick it up with binoculars. Again, if you're really close to sunrise, make sure that where the sun is going to rise is blocked out by something really big and massive like a building so that you don't accidentally glimpse the sun through binoculars. Yep. But the, the pairing of uh, Venus and, and, moon, and the Moon, even when twilight is well advanced, should be really nice to watch. On October the 24th, the crescent moon and Saturn will be very close. Not close enough to fit into a telescope, unfortunately, but you should be able to see in binoculars the oblate shape of Saturn by its rings and the Moon close together. Very good. And do you have a tangent for us this weekend? Comet C-2017-01 Assassin 
don't you just love that name? Great name. <laughs> yeah, it's actually named for a supernova survey, uh, which just happened, whose acronym just happens to be ALSSN, SN for supernova, and it's pronounced assassin, which is kind of kind of amusing, but apparently caused some consternation amongst the uh, the people who handed out comet names <laughs> and so while it was just C slash 2017 before they stuck the uh, discovery group on. Now, that's going to be at its closest to Earth. Now, the comet is described as a binocular comet, but you really have to have serious binoculars to, to see this. I'll be talking about the kinds of heavy binoculars you need to stick on a, uh, a tripod. It's going to be magnitude 8, uh, but it should be very, a very nice little comet if you've got small telescope or binoculars and be very nice to look at. One interesting thing is that on the 18th, its position means that if you're taking photographs simultaneously from America and Europe, if you're taking uh, at a roughly equivalent uh, universal time, uh, and you have to juggle this right because of sunrise and sunset, of course, you'll be able to get stereo images of the comet season slash 2017-01. And that would be really interesting to do. Uh, and there's a, a group of people who are trying to organise this stereo imaging of Comet C slash 2017-01. Sadly, if, if that's the brightest comet in the sky at the moment, uh, nothing else is very interesting in the cometry area. There have been some comets that have, uh, comets have just been discovered which might get up to bright binocular or possibly even dim unaided eye level. Still waiting for some confirmation on the orbital details of these. But we could have some interesting cometry activity next year. Uh, nothing spectacular, but there's still some nice, nice things for binoculars and small telescopes. One of the things that has been discovered is yet another ring system. Now, I know I bang on about occultations quite a bit, and I don't want to make this all occultations all the time. But recently, scientists studying Haumea, which is one of the dwarf planets, it's a rather peculiar dwarf planet because it's a Aye. fast rotator with a very unusual elliptical shape. Yep. And they were using occultations to map out precise shape of Hyomia. And what they discovered is that uh, there was dips before and dips after Hyomia. And because they had multiple tracking stations, they were able to show that these dips formed a ring around Hyomia. So Hyomia has a ring, and this is the first dwarf planet that has been shown to have a ring system. Yep. Uh, we also know there are two central objects. One is Chiron, and the other, I'm going to get the name of this from, is uh, Cherry uh, Colo. That's a sort of glorified ice asteroids. Cherry-Loco uh, was the, the first non-giant planet to be discovered to have a, uh, a ring system. And it's the things that people think that this is a collisional debris forming this ring. Similarly with uh, Chiron, the evidence for the ring around Chiron is a little bit more tenuous but there is a definite, uh, but there is a suggestions of, of, of either a ring or ring arc systems around Chiron. But with Hyamea, there's very definitely uh, a ring, and the debris, uh, the, the ring system is within the Roche limit of a Hyamea. Hyamea is also uh, interesting because it has two moons. It's one of the dwarf planets with multiple moons. And it's also part of a family of objects which share similar orbital characteristics. And what they think has happened and why 
Pioneer is a fast rotator with a strange shape, is that it was hit by some object which slammed a lot of debris off, starting it spinning rapidly, which then pushed it into this rather elongated shape because it's uh, largely water ice. Part of the debris formed the two moons, and uh, other parts of the debris formed other objects that are in uh, Hymea's family of objects. So it was originally a much larger object, which Fantastic. has been shattered to yep. a group of smaller objects, along with its moons, and the ring. The ring is probably debris left over from that initial impact that shattered the uh, proto Hymea into, uh, into the family of objects that follow its orbit. Awesome. What's also interesting is that uh, from the data, from the occultation, from our understanding of how it rotates, it's probably not a homogeneous mass. So it's not something that's ice all the way through. It's probably like other large dwarf planets in that it has a rather complex interior with with, uh, various layers of different ices. They're followed by water ice, they're followed by rocks. So it's, it's a complex object related to uh, other uh, objects like Pluto and, and so on that have very complex uh, internal geographies. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I thought that was rather interesting myself. And hopefully by tomorrow night I'll have finished creating a Celestia script that will allow you to put a ring, put a ring around Hyomia and you can visit it in Celestia. Okay, and we'll get that information from your blog, Astroblog. You very, very definitely will. Okay, go and look at Astroblog. One more thing that I should bring up, seeing as we're talking about debris, on the 21st and the 22nd, it will be the peak of the Orionid meteor shower, which I briefly mentioned last week. Yep. Now, the Orionids are the debris of Halley's Comet, of all things. It's not a very strong shower after midnight, sadly, tragically, and relatively easy to find is almost directly under the bright red star Betelgeuse, one of the iconic stars of Orion, which yep. is why, of course, this meteor shower for the Orions. The moon will basically be uh, not visible. So those of you who have you know, dark skies will be able to um, see meteors from about 2 o'clock in the morning until just before dawn, with the fastest rates being around about 3 to 4 p.m. We will see some on the order of a meteor every five minutes. Not a fantastic shower, but it's well worth it. The morning sky will be beautiful. Orion will be beautiful. And just seeing these meteors shoot out from underneath Orion will be really quite nice. Get out there and have a look. Indeed. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Thank you very much, Brendan. It was a pleasure. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave!